topic this morning is a call to holiness, which Peter gives us in his first chapter here. The first thing he says in regards to that is, get your head on straight. That's a colloquialism that we use, but here's the way he says it. Therefore, that is in light of what we have been studying about trials and persecutions and the promised turnaround that's coming. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. All action, all behavior proceeds from mental attitude and decisions. Even indifference, what we might call apathy, proceed from a certain mental outlook on the issues under review. So if we do not think straight, we will not behave in a God-honoring way. That's all of life. The starting point must be, it must always be, every time it must be, a preparation for the mind uh, for action. You know, God repeatedly calls his people to right thinking. For example, the psalmist says, Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. So you see, he he attaches mind with your truth. He goes on. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites, I abhor the assembly of evildoers. I refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar. O Lord, I proclaim aloud and praise and tell all of your wonderful deeds. That's Psalm 26, verses 2 and following. So he talks, his prayer is that God will examine his heart and his mind and keep him attached to the truth. He doesn't want to sit with the hypocrites and the evildoers, which he knows he's going to get bad information if he does. Or Isaiah the prophet writes, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Isaiah 26 Verse 3 and 4. Jeremiah tells us what God is looking for. He writes, The heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? The Lord searches the heart and examines the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, verse 10. And John warned us, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 15. And Jesus taught, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? Mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Matthew 22, verse 37, verse 38. Paul himself admitted the struggle in his own life between flesh and spirit. Here's his confession. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, 
But in the sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. So you see his struggle. That's Romans 7, verse 25. And in chapter 12, he gave this directive. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Romans 12, verse 2. And I might say there is even a problem for the religious in this old matter of thinking. It happened with Israel. We read, but their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is the veil taken away. Even to this day when Moses has read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14 and following. See, all of these verses, they are united in purpose with one message. And the message is this. Get your head straight. Get your head straight. A person of the world has a mindset to please themselves. Christians, too, are not exempt from this worldly concern. And that's why John warns us against loving the world. Our love will direct our interests. If we love Christ, our minds will oscillate towards pleasing Him. But if we love the world, our minds are going to oscillate towards grabbing as much of the world as we can for ourselves. Keep in mind as we are thinking through 1 Peter that it is the world which is largely responsible for persecuting us for our faith. The world is not neutral. It's hostile to God. It's hostile to God's people. No matter how tame at times it may appear. Some years ago I read a story of a woman in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Now Allentown is about two hours from where I was raised in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. But this woman raised a black bear as a pet. And she called it Teddy. Teddy bear. You get it. Well, Teddy mauled her to death. 350 pound. We have black bears in Pennsylvania. Just, they're in the woods. Mauled her to death as she tried to clean its cage. The game warden said that the cage was divided into two separate sections so the bear could be locked in one area to clean the other area. That, was, that made sense, right? 
Well, for some unknown reason, Kelly did not isolate the bear, who was part of her family, for 10 years. This woman also kept a Siberian tiger and an African lion. Yes, she had the legal permits for these wild animals, but the warden went on to say, these animals, though domesticated to some degree, are always wild at heart. That means, the warden said, they are unpredictable and deadly. Ten years she took care of these animals. I remember... um, Uh, I think they were entertainers, Sigmund and Roy. They worked with um, tigers in a cage. They did. And they had the tigers jump through hoops and over barriers and open their jaw and allow them to stick their head in the jaw. Would you do that? But they, they did that. Well, I don't know which one it was, Sigmund or Roy, but they got bit by one of the tigers. And he... The one that was bit had to plead with the authorities not to kill, not to euthanize the tiger for having done that. He had put a lot of training into that animal, but training or not, it was wild. And it bit him, and he had to go through many surgeries to have his face uh, reconstructed. And to me, this story indicates the spiritual truth, the spiritual truth Concerning the God of this world. That is Satan. Who goes about. Peter writes. Like a roaring lion. Seeking someone. To devour. First Peter 5 verse 8. It's right in our book that we're studying here. So my point is. If you love the world. You're playing with fire. You think you can play in the devil's sandbox. And not experience the true grit of the world's hatred. But the day will come when the world, like Kelly, steady bear, will turn on you and show its true nature. And if this were not complication enough, James warns us, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4, verse 4. And we think, well, you know, I wouldn't quite, I wouldn't say it that way. Well, we wouldn't, but James, writing under inspiration of God, says that the world is our enemy. And the point he's making is you can't tame the wild world. You can't do it. Every day, every day, the news displays some deep depravity of the human heart, which has become the latest shocker to our moral sensitivity. And this past week, what has it been? Well, this whole thing in New Zealand, where some guy went a shooting in two mosques and killed 50 people. 50 yeah, the toll's been raised 50 people you say how does that happen in our world because we're dealing with human nature sinful human nature 
We read of that, and such exposure makes us morally numb or insensitive. The wild wins us over. We don't tame it. Sin sways us, and our minds are more deeply rooted in the quagmire of lawlessness. That's our world. That's the seductive nature of our world. We think because the world has been silent or passive, temperate in its manner, that we may enter its cage and clean it up, bring some sense of purity to a filthy environment. We think, so-and-so is my friend. (laughs) I can trust him. I can trust her. But one day we turn our back on that person and suddenly we find ourselves under attack. The world is no safe haven for followers of Jesus Christ. It is a hostile environment fraught with many deadly snares. If we don't think straight in these matters. We will convince ourselves that we are safe when we are not. We will relax when we should be on guard. We will become passive instead of diligent, accepting of the world in a society that cannot be trusted. The hymn writer Isaac Watts He asks the question, and then he gives his own answer after asking his own question. Here it is. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? While others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil and endure the pain. Subhorted. By thy word. And you see that the hymn subtly, subtly addresses the tendency in believers to be gullible and trusting and asleep when it comes to the true nature of the world in which we live. And so the hymn writer is asking, Don't you really know what the world's like? Have you gone to sleep? Has it allured you into thinking that all is well? We mean you no harm. Well, how do we respond? Well, Peter says we have to prepare the mind for action. Prepare the mind. How do we do that? Firstly, by being self Controlled, verse 13. King James uses the word sober, but it's a word that means to be free from the influence of intoxicants. In other words, you control the wine, the wine doesn't control you. Thus the idea of self 
control. One text which combines both ideas using this word is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6 and following, which reads, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Or Paul said to Timothy, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. 2 Timothy 4 verse 5. You, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. He wasn't talking about Timothy's going to lose his head physically. He means keep your thinking straight. When the world is running after the latest fad and will not put up with sound doctrine but wants to hear soothing and pleasant words, Timothy is told, preach the gospel. And to do this, he will have to keep his head in all situations. He cannot allow himself to entertain vain or erroneous thoughts. He has to have the discipline to discern between error and truth, between the superficial and the essential, and only preach the latter, the essential. And a mind prepared for action has to be self-controlled. You cannot allow yourself to think as the world does. That is selfishly, egotistically, as though your opinion on matters is the equivalent of thus saith the Lord. It's not. It will never be. I hear it all the time, however, from Christians. Well, I think that I did do, did I do, did I do, do. And what they think isn't necessarily biblical, but that's the way they think. You can't allow your mind to wander down rabbit trails that seem plausible, but they have no wisdom from God in them. Satan likes to distract our thoughts. Solomon warns us of misdirected thoughts. Greatest wise man that ever lived, short of Christ. Here's what he says. He says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end, it leads to death. Hmm. There's a way that seems right. But if it leads to death, was it right? Is that where I want to go with my thoughts? Or again, he says, a simple man believes anything. (laughs) But a prudent man gives thoughts to his steps. Hmm. A wise man fears the Lord and shuns evil, but a fool is hot-headed and reckless. A quick-tempered man does foolish things, and a crafty man is hated. Proverbs 14, verse 12 and 5. 
Oh, when we come into the New Testament, the Apostle John says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 John 4, verse 1. If there's one concern I have as a pastor for the confessing Christians of our culture, it is gullibility. But my preacher says, but I read this in a book, but I think Solomon instructs us the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. But the folly of fools is deception. Proverbs 14, verse 8. Let me read it again. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. Think about where you're stepping, think about where you're going. Don't just take life as it comes. Put some thought into it. And to be self-controlled, one needs to be spirit-controlled. There's nothing in human nature which leans towards moderation and self-discipline unless it's for self-preservation. Yeah, we have that. Tell a man that he will have a heart attack within a year unless he loses 50 pounds, and you can be sure he will get on the exercise machine and he will try to curb his appetite. Why? Because it's still love of self. It is a motivation to him to act. He doesn't want to die. Peter's point centers around a holy life for God. Verse 15 and following. And so the self-discipline that he has in mind is that of spirit discipline, which issues in life, in the life of the righteous that glorify God. So how do we prepare the mind? Be self-controlled. Think straight. Secondly, live a life of hope that's fixed on Jesus Christ. I think Peter has been very honest with his hearers. He has not fed them pipe dreams and fairy tales, outcomes. He has admitted to them that in the present circumstances, they are experiencing, let me read it for you, verse 6, they are experiencing grief in all kinds of trials. It's like he's saying to them, I know what you're going through. And it isn't pleasant. This is not pie in the sky theology. This is rubber meets the road theology. I know you're going through <laughs> all kinds of trials. And while he has told them this, there is a remedial effect upon such suffering, namely that their faith is being Prove genuine, verse 7. 
saying that, he does not suggest to them that life is easier just to know that. Well, I told you these things, so, you know, buck up. Feel happy. No. Life was very hard for Peter's audience. They were experiencing the four Christ sufferings, which the Old Testament prophets predicted would occur in the latter days with God's people, verse 11. And if all this were not bad enough, Peter tells them that these trials will continue until Christ is revealed and the glory portion of the prophecies come true, verse 7, and that hasn't happened yet. Well, he tells them that it's coming. So I asked the question, what were they supposed to do in the meantime? <laughs> More importantly, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Well, we could dwell on our personal plight. We could begin to feel sorry for ourselves. We could do that. We could fail to remember that Jesus suffered much worse by the hands of sinners. We could move into Pity City and bemoan our predicament. We could complain to God that he doesn't love us, that he's not treating us fair. We could compromise our faith. We could ease up on our Christian testimony so that the world would kind of back off and give us a little space. A little breathing room. We could turn our back on God totally. Renounce our faith in Jesus. Go back into the world. Become one with unrepentant hedonistic sinners all over again. Fall away. But none of this characterizes a person who has his head on straight. While there might be some easement of trials for the moment, Jesus poses this question. Kind of, the, the question is this, well, at what price? He doesn't say it that way. Here's the way he says it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Mark 8, verse 36. Forfeit my soul. But I have the world. But forfeit my soul? Well, that's a terrible price. That's a spiritual bankruptcy from which there's no recovery. You mean that's it? I can't be part of the world and be saved at the same time? I can't love Christ and love the world too? No, you can't. Jesus says, saying, every action has a consequence. Think before you act. What to you seems to be the way to go, amassing wealth and power so you can buy your troubles away, may very well end up in you losing your soul for all of eternity. You know, in the very next verse, Jesus asks another question. Here it is. Or, says Jesus, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? 
Mark 8, verse 37. So let's say you do amass your fortune in U.S. dollars and stocks and bonds and real estate. Do you really think you can bargain with God for your soul if you just pay him enough? Now, this is the God who said, if I were hungry, I'm reading scripture, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Psalm 50, verse 12. So would that God who owns the world and everything in it, would he be impressed with anything that you had to offer him? would he need anything that you have to offer him no there's a much better way to live there is but one way to live for the believer and that's to live your life with the set hope on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed verse 13 daily we live our lives by God's grace that's true But Peter's talking about that supernova of grace, that explosion of grace that will be yours and mine in the day of Christ's return. We're to live with that anticipation and keep that focus. Paul writes it this way, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, Romans 15, verse 13. Or in writing to the Thessalonians, Since we belong to the day, let's be self-controlled, putting on faith and love in it as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Helmet, we're back to the head again, aren't we? Protect the head. Protect your thinking. Elsewhere, Jesus said, as a man thinks within his heart, that's what he is. The writer of Hebrews wrote this testimony concerning his readers. Here's what he wrote. This is good, this is good counsel for us, too. He writes... Remember those early days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison You joyfully accept the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Hebrews 10, verse 32 and following. What is he saying? He's saying these people lived in the hope in the confidence of Christ's return and reward. And guess what? That's the only way to live. 
the danger is like Peter on the sea taking his eyes off of Christ and he begins to sink. He's looking at the waves crashing around. And don't do that. That is discouraging. The world is discouraging. And the danger is of discouragement. The danger is defeat in our minds. Jesus, in talking of end-day troubles, went on to say to his disciples, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. That you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Referring to himself. Luke 21, verse 33 and following. You've got to do some standing. You've got to do some assessment you got to fight against discouragement and defeat we have an illustration in the old testament when god laid jehoshaphat and he was a godly king one of the few that israel had when jehoshaphat was facing a formidable foe in the alliance of the ammonites with the moabites and the men of mount seir who came against him the people prayed here it is O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, as he stood in the assembly, and he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow... March down against them. You will not have to fight this battle. Take your positions. Stand firm. See the deliverance that the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Second Chronicles 20, verse 12 and following. I wonder, does not the God... Our God say that to us at times. Just go out and face them. Don't worry about you having to fight or come up with the right thoughts or the right words. Just go out and face the enemies. Well, what happened? <laughs> well, what occurred was the self-destruction among these armies as they did the strangest thing 
they turned on one another and killed each other. Ooh. Who does that? They were in an alliance, an alliance against Israel. But they don't attack Israel, they attack each other. We read in Second Chronicles 20, When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert, and they looked towards the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. Wow. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their, their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that they took three days to collect it all. Second Chronicles 20, verse 24 and 25. Only God can do that. <laughs> King Jehoshaphat and his people lived in anticipation of God's coming and God's deliverance for them. They just did as they were told. They went out to battle, but they never had to lift a sword. They never had to shoot an arrow, but they went out. All they had to do was plunder the wealth of their enemies. This is a microcosm of what it will be like at Jesus' return. If we have our heads on straight about life and living, we will not concentrate our thinking on the bad, the ugly, the painful, the sorrowful, all the could-be, would-be's that might happen. We'll have our heads straight. We'll be thinking of the victory in Christ at his revelation, verse 13. Secondly, not only are we to have our heads on straight, but we are to cultivate a life of holiness. What is holiness? Well, the Greek word means to separate or to be separate. Separate from what? From the world. Yes, that's the negative, but the positive is separated unto God. Both separated from, separated to. Notice that in connection with God's calling, verse 15, just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. Peter explains, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Holiness has to do with being called out of darkness into God's light. But what's this separation supposed to look like? Does it have to do with external things like haircuts and skirt lengths and body piercings and tattoos and music styles? Well, don't be too quick to answer no. In fact, the biblical authors do address all of these things. Leviticus 19, verse 28 says, Do not cut your bodies for the dead. 
Do not put tattoo marks on yourself. I'm reading scripture. Did you know that was in the Bible? It is. Do not cut your bodies for the dead. Do not put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19 verse 28. Have you noticed how um, body piercing, tattooing, body art, all of that has exploded in, in our culture? Oh yeah, I know. It used to be that Soldiers going off to war would tattoo the name of their mother on their bicep or their sweetheart. But now the top, the top subjects for tattoo artists are skulls and skeletons and snakes and scorpions and spiders and swords and signs of the zodiac and gory monsters and depictions of the devil and on and on it goes. All of these things, where do they come from? They come from the occult world. God forbade his people from doing these things for the very reason that the pagan world practices these things. (laughs) How are they going to look any different? Should we look any different? At the contest at Mount Carmel, Elijah and the prophets of Baal One thing which distinguished the idolaters from God's true prophets was this. Let me read it for you. This is the worshippers of Baal. So they shouted louder. They slashed themselves with swords and with spears as was their custom until the blood flowed. 1 Kings 18 verse 28. That's. You know, you got, you got to think about Satan and what he does. He is the minister of death. He loves death. Dying. Hurting. He's a masochist. In contrast to that, Leviticus 21, verse 5 and 6 says, The priests must not shave their heads, shave off the edges of their beards, or cut their bodies. They must be holy, separated to their God, and must not profane the name of the name of their God. Leviticus twenty-one, verse five and six. That's said to the priests, and then it's carried over to the people in general. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourself or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people holy to your Lord your God. Out of the people. All the people on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1 and 2. That's the Old Testament. If we come to the New Testament, it's still there. It's there in the New Testament. I read it for you. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are not your own. Therefore, honor God with your body. I wonder if we think about that. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and following.
The New Testament also says, I want also women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 and 10. And Peter adds, your beauty should not come, should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 1 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4. These are the externals that should reflect the internal heart. Now, it's true. None of this is, in a, is a condemnation of all jewelry or hairstyles or whatever. Remember, the tabernacle furnishings in the Old Covenant were made from what? The jewelry and gold donations of the people. In fact, that's how they got the gold sockets that held the rod, the, the, the posts, that held the curtains. Da, 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 da. They brought so much that Moses said, Hey, stop, stop, stop. We have more than enough to make this tabernacle beautiful. Remember that Esther presented herself to King Xerxes after six months of preparation with oils and perfumes and clothing and jewelry and six months to get ready for a date. What's the caution? And the caution is against looking like and living like the world, like the people of the nations. Isaiah puts it this way, in that day the Lord will snatch away their finery the bangles, the headbands, the crescent necklaces, the earrings, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the ankle chains, the sashes, the perfume bottles, the charms, the signet rings, the nose rings, the fine robes, the capes, the cloaks. I'm reading scripture here. This is a long list. It goes on. The purses, the mirrors, the linen garments, the tiaras, the shawls. Instead of fragrance, there's going to be a stench. Instead of a sash, you get a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Oh, all, all against the women. God's not being feared. What happens to the men? Here's what happens to the men. I'm reading on. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle. That's what happens. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. Isaiah 3, verse 18 and following. Why? 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 Isaiah writes, Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. 
they have brought disaster upon themselves. Isaiah 3, verse 8 and 9. Yet surely the condemnation of these external things, excessive love and display of jewelry, clothing, tattoos, body piercing, they all speak to a spiritual separation need for holiness. I know of people who think that dressing like the pilgrims or like the early American pioneers makes them holy. I'm sure you know some communities like that. Yet they're simply adopting a dress style of people of the world from yesteryear, but it's still the world, just a different era. We are to cultivate a life of dependence upon and worship of God, but alas, we're too much like Israel of old. Jeremiah writes, as a thief is disgraced when he's caught, So the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, they say to wood, now he's talking about a carving, they say to wood, you are my father. They say to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, Oh, come and save us! Does that sound like our fickle society? And God says, Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come, if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. Why do you bring charges against me? You have rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like ravening lion. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say, we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Though they did not catch them breaking in. 
Yet in spite of all this, you say, I'm innocent. He's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because you say, I have not sinned. Jeremiah 2, verse 26 and following. Not me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's my brother, it's my sister, but not me. Brother, in genuine repentance resulting in holiness means do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, verse 17 of our text. We cannot say to God, I am innocent, I have not sinned, He, she, not me. Reminds me of that story of the Pharisee, right? <laughs> I'm glad I'm not like other men or even like uh, this sinner here that's praying. But that sinner there praying went away justified in the Pharisee who said, not me, not me, not me. He didn't go away justified. He went away condemned. I think we need to be honest about our sin. We want to grow as a church. But why would God want us to grow as a church? If we're struggling with our own selfishness and egotistical things and our own wants and desires and so on. If sin is so much a part of us, God doesn't need to re reproduce that in his people. We need to pray for our own selves and that God would grant repentance and exalt himself. Father, thank you for your word. It's humbling at times. Well, all the time. If we're wise enough to read the right portions, if we'll stare into the word and not be like James hearers that said well they looked into the word they saw what God had to say about them and then they immediately forgot it that's what we do sometimes Lord we um, we exonerate ourselves we condemn others righteousness exalts a nation but do we see our nation being exalted these days or are we always trying to just keep our head above water Pray that you'll help us, that you'll grant us repentance and faith, trust you. Let's live holy lives for the Lord, I pray. Amen. Our